Hello, can you hear me? I can. Hello, how are you? Hi. <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. I feel like, you know, the new world order is, you know, children and dogs and conference calls and technical problems. It's just, yeah. <laughs> that's the apocalypse. I'm a, I'm a, it is the apocalypse. I'm amazed that Zoom works as well as it does when it works. Yeah, agreed. Are you teaching classes this quarter? I am, yeah. Just so, uh, reaching the end of the semester, so. Oh, semester. So are you teaching online then? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a new thing. I agree. It's very interesting. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, so you usually are, are you, are you, do you organize the town hall events usually? Is that part of your no. role? No, no. Okay. No, my role is as a, as a correspondent for the, for the um, podcast that we do. Mm. And um, my the, my uh, Ginny Palmer is the woman who puts together the podcast, and she works with the people at Town Hall. Oh, okay. And um, so I, your uh, your role is the same, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a journalist for a long time, and I had a radio show for a long time. And oh, cool! What was the radio show? It was a public radio show in Seattle. It's a, we were an all news station. I think KJZZ's music and news, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we were all news. Okay. And um, I had a two hour morning show, an interview show, cool. politics, news, you know, whatever was happening. And then two hours is a long time. So I had a lot of time to get to talk to authors. Yeah. And it was great. It was a great time. I did it for 30 years though. That was, that was good. Wow. <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> that was enough time. Uh, yeah, so now I do this and I teach at the U, cool. the University of Washington. I teach, I teach this kind of stuff in communications. Awesome. The class I'm teaching right now is called Communication for Scientists. So it's basically for graduate students that want to enhance their skills at communicating um, with broader audiences and also communicating within academia. So we like talk about everything from uh, how to write pitches and get your, you know, work, your written work published to how to do better presentations at conferences and stuff. Oh, that's great. That's exactly one of the things I talk about in, uh, in my class. I, and yeah, be, because it's interviewing, it's also for the students to think about how it is to be interviewed and how they have to prep for that and what they have to right. think about. We talk to doctors, we talk to, um, lawyers we talk to salespeople, but all getting them prepped to to think that it's you know both sides of the equation are equally important yeah so yeah getting scientists to be able to be good communicators is critical yeah yeah and, and i realize also you know like there's just this huge gap i think um that's kind of artificial between you know scientists and the public um and a lot of it is just because scientists use language that is not part of normal discourse when it would be you know perfectly fine to use synonyms that are part of normal discourse without losing any of the content and uh we just as scientists we kind of get trained to to use harder to understand language um in order to kind of show that we're part of the in-group and so it's like how do you you know untrain that or like try to catch it early enough with the grad students that they don't fall into doing that, it's a, it's a challenge. Well, you know, two things on that. One, I'll come back to, but one, just to start, I mean, the cheating cell is very much, a, you obviously did a lot of work to make it accessible and, and informative 
and you you take the ideas and even repeat them make sure we're getting them give them to us in different ways it was very i found it very accessible i mean really really nicely accessible i i was learning as i was going along in a way that sometimes you have to struggle with with some science books well that is awesome to hear because that was my goal and to know that it worked at least for you is <laughs> great oh no it works it works a lot it's really good i i really appreciated it um okay uh I might use a little bit of that in yeah, this conversation, sure. if I may. Use whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, I heard that you're running around also dealing with three kids at home too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah. Heard a, I heard a dog back there too. There's two dogs. We actually, <laughs> we um, got a second dog just as it was becoming clear that things were going to change dramatically because it was like, okay, we can't take our dog to the dog park anymore. Um, and our kids are going to, you know, be at loose ends a little more. So why don't we just add another dog to the mix? So why not? Uh, exactly. Yeah. So um, she's been great. And we've got, you know, seven beings running around here. So I think at the moment, this room is relatively under control. I've, I've told, at least those capable of higher cognition that I should not be disturbed, but there are some dogs right out there who might come over here and, and bug me. Hopefully they won't, but <laughs> that's, we'll that's, you know, I don't know if you've been watching all the different late night shows, but that's all part of the process now, right? Kids yep. and dogs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, not a puppy then you didn't get a puppy. Yeah. So we got a um, rescue and she had been astray uh, and she got picked up um, by a shelter and was with a foster family. And we met her and um, kind of borrowed her for a couple hours to see how she got along with our other dog. And um, they were at each other's throats for about an hour and then they started playing really well. So, <laughs> so it worked out. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. We, uh, we ended up with a puppy too, two and a half weeks ago similar situation really yeah except we but we did end up with a puppy yeah similar situation um we were looking for a, a dog and wanting to um adopt and we adopted from a, a, a place in seattle that gets dogs that are going to be killed in other shelters and so yeah. the, these dogs were from texas and wow. my my son and his and his partner got a little puppy about two months ago and um i had met the the foster mom and mm. then this little puppy was returned by the family just two and a half weeks ago because they couldn't handle it while that was changing yeah. and so she called me up and said hey uh you were talking about getting a dog now's your chance yeah and it's That's, been pretty good yeah it's kind of nice you know with being more homebound to just you know have another loving being around right so yes yes <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we are, uh, we are, I think you and I are lucky because we have homes that are big and we have a little bit of yard. I mean, I know a lot of people yeah. are not happy and are suffering, but there yeah. is that aspect of it that we yeah. slow down, we think a little more, we have a little time to ponder all this, what, what we value and what we don't value. Yeah. Well, and you know, it is, you know, it's a small thing, but it's still something that we can do to help you know, because shelters are shutting down and like there's no time that dogs are, you know, needing to be adopted, pets are needing to be adopted than now. So we thought maybe, you know, it's also a good time now in terms of the need being there. So we'd, we had thought maybe we'd do it in a year or two, but we're just like, oh, let's just, let's just get a dog. So <laughs> another That's dog. Great. So. That's great. 
Hey, um, all right. Uh, there are a lot of things I want to ask you. And of course, we don't have a ton of time because I have a class at 2.30. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, but let me, let me, let me, uh, let me ask a couple of big, broad questions because I also want to get into the way you're doing this work and thinking about it. But let me ask the big, broad question to start. What is cancer? Oh, what is cancer? So cancer is so many things uh, on so many different levels. So it depends who you ask and what the context is, but you're asking me right now in the context of this interview, I would say that the thing that really holds together all these different kind of approaches to cancer um, in terms of what cancer is, is that cancer happens when there is sort of a breakdown of the multicellular cooperation that usually characterizes us as organisms, as multicellular organisms. So when you get cells that are behaving in ways that are bad for the viability of the organism of which they're a part, um, and when those cells are actually gaining an evolutionary advantage because of that aberrant behavior and expanding in the population, that's what cancer is sort of from a evolutionary cooperation theory perspective. And you, and, and you said it right in the context of this and of the answer. So why was that? A, a, I mean, because I'm, I'm coming to the question of how you're thinking about cancer a little differently from the way we think about cancer as a disease that we have to war upon. So why was context critical to that answer? Yeah, because cancer in the clinic. So if someone, you know, comes in to see a doctor about cancer or is getting treated for cancer, then cancer really gets defined as a situation where cells are invading or metastasizing. So when they're kind of breaking free of the organ or tissue where they started and then going into other tissues. And so in the clinic, that's really how cancer is defined. And usually the threshold for when um, it's decided that treatment should happen is once that invasion and or metastasis has occurred. Um, and, you know, once that does happen, um, then, you know, very often there's a, uh, a, an approach that is very aggressive to sort of try to destroy the, the cancer um, once you have that invasion metastasis. That's not necessarily the way you're thinking about it, though, or the way a lot of the think theories, a lot of the thinkers you're talking about in their theories think about it. It's a much more um, organic, ecological situation. Yeah. So in order to really understand where cancer comes from and why it exists, we have to think of a lot of different layers and levels of context. So, you know, when we think about this notion that, you know, cancer is a cheater in multicellular cooperation, in order to unpack that, we have to consider what happened at the very origins of multicellular life. You know, how did multicellularity evolve? What were the challenges? What were the opportunities in that transition from basically cells just 
being um, like sole proprietors <laughs> to kind of working together, almost like a, you could think of it as like a small business or now like a, a huge corporation, if you'll forgive my, you know, play on words there. <laughs> but, you know, it is, it, the, the analogies do, um, I think, follow a lot of um, the reality of, you know, sort of going from being single cellular life to being multicellular life. You scale up in complexity. Um, you still have a lot of um, the same kinds of challenges, you know, as a single cellular organism from a multicellular organism, but the way that you solve those is very different, right? If you're a unicellular organism, you just take in resources and you reproduce and life is a lot simpler. But if you're a multicellular organism, you have to, you know, um, especially for large and complex organisms like us, right? Our cells aren't absorbing nutrients that they use directly, right? We're, we're eating it and then we have specialized cells that extract the nutrients and then we have um, circulatory systems that move, you know, the nutrients and oxygen around to get to the cells that need them. So you have this whole, um, you know, chain of how the cells are getting what they need in order to do their jobs to make us function. And to get from a unicellular organism to a multicellular organism, there's all of these sort of problems of potential cheating that need to get solved, that need to get suppressed in order for it to be viable for us to exist the way we do. So the story of cancer is really rooted in that challenge of evolving from unicellular life to multicellular life. Explain what you mean by cheating, that the cancer cells are cells that are cheating. Yeah. So in a multicellular body, cells can't just replicate indefinitely um, without disrupting the structure of the multicellular body. And they can't use all the resources that are around without limit um, because that uh, makes it so that the body can't function, right? Um, similarly with doing the right jobs that they should, right? Like liver cells have to act like liver cells and heart cells have to act like heart cells. Um, and so there are all of these sort of I mean, you could almost think of them as like social or economic rules that have to be followed by the cells in order to make it possible for us to function as this higher level organism that we are. And what happens in cancer is that a lot of the gene pathways that regulate that cooperation to make us multicellular, they can get mutated. And then you also can get mutations in the systems that are there to sort of detect and suppress the cheating. So the, you have sort of a, several different levels where um, the system can get disrupted. So you can actually you know, have cells that are um, having too high rates of metabolism that are replicating too quickly, that aren't um, monitoring their own genomes for um, mutations. So many different ways that the cells can sort of cheat in what the um, you know, rules of multicellular living kind of are. And that cheating is what gives us tumors, cancers, metastasizing of, of other cells. Yeah, so it is that cheating combined with the evolutionary dynamics that is, is really what makes cancer cancer. So um, essentially, you know, what you have are situations where cells can get benefits at the cellular level, like those cells that are proliferating too quickly, right? 
they are creating more copies of themselves. Those cells that are using up more resources, they have more resources to create more copies of themselves or to move around the body. Um, so they're getting a cell level benefit from doing that. And that allows them to then expand in the population of cells in the body. So the cheating is giving them an evolutionary advantage. And then that evolutionary advantage is the reason that they're expanding in the population, um, which is then why cancer uh, manifests the way that it does um, when um, you know, somebody goes into the clinic with a tumor. You make the point that there's a difference between um, the cellular level of these, of these issues of, of manifesting itself and the, and the population level, because people often say, well, it makes no sense that we have cancer because it kills its host. And how is that a good thing for a, an organism? But of course, cancer isn't operating that way at the level of the cell, is it? Yeah. So the fascinating thing about this kind of epic story of cancer, you know, understanding it in this evolutionary context is that there are two entirely different levels of um, selection going on. Evolution is operating on two types of entities. So um, one is you know, what we have been talking about in the last few minutes, which is within the organism, right? Evolution is favoring those cells, natural selection favors those cells that have a survival and reproductive advantage over the other cells, right? That's just a fact of, you know, what it means for evolution by natural selection to be taking place. So, so that is, you know, within a body, the cheating cells are going to be the cells that all else being equal will um, take over the population if there aren't other mechanisms to keep them under control. But if we think now of the level of, um, organisms. So you could, you know, say, uh, you know, the, the earliest um, multicellular organisms, or you could even think of a population of, you know, humans, um, any population of organisms, there's going to be variation among the individuals in their um, ability to keep that cancer under control through, um, you know, uh, genes like cancer suppressor genes like TP53, um, having, you know, immune systems that are good at detecting if there are things that aren't, that, you know, aren't um, normal that are going on and responding to those. So among individuals in a population of organisms, there's going to be variation in that. And the individuals in that organismal population that are better at suppressing the cancer they're going to be more likely to live to reproductive age and um, then they're going to have a larger proportion of the population of organisms in future generations. So you have these two levels where, um, you know, within an organism, cancer can be favored, but then among organisms, having better cancer suppression mechanisms will be favored. You, uh, you talk about the distinction or the or the or the um, the balance rather between um, what these systems are doing in terms of in terms of aging and energy and how those are um, how that balance is so important and when it gets out of balance we we either get cancer or we age too quickly and these are all part of the same ecological dynamics involved in in the situation of cancer right 
Yeah. So, so there's another level of complexity to this evolutionary story when we talk about organisms evolving cancer suppression systems, which is that um, sometimes there can be actually sort of ironically fitness costs to having cancer suppression mechanisms that are really effective. So um, one example um, that I, I like is the um, example of um, wound healing systems. You can really see that there's a sort of trade-off here where, you know, if you have a physiology that um, has, you know, you have cells that can replicate quickly and migrate to cover a wound, then that can help you survive, right? To, um, so that you are able to be reproductively successful, et cetera. But um, so that's a, that's a beneficial trait to be able to do that. But it can also create a vulnerability because then you have cells that can go into this state of replicating quickly and moving and then creating a signaling environment around them that's more tolerant of that kind of cellular behavior. Um, and in fact, what you see sometimes in cancer is that um, the um, signaling environment, the, the um, molecules that are around are creating essentially a, a, um, a wound-like environment in the tumor that is sort of allowing for the cancer cells to keep doing what they're doing without being um, sort of shut down and detected. So wound healing is one of those things where it's you know, it's clear that it's really good to be able to heal a wound for fitness, but it can potentially create some vulnerabilities as well. So, you know, you might be able to turn down, um, you know, some of the uh, vulnerabilities, of, you know, by um, holding back on the way that you might heal a wound, but that could have negative effects if you do get wounded and you're not able to heal as quickly. So there are a number of examples like that where you have this sort of trade-off between cancer suppression or cancer you know, vulnerability and then these other traits that are relevant to fitness. So, so that can kind of create a constraint on the cancer, um, the evolution of cancer defenses more broadly. You quote one doctor is calling cancer the wound that never heals. So is, is can, what is cancer? Is, it, is cancer a disease in the way we think of the common cold or the coronavirus? Yeah, well, you know, by and large, cancer is not um, infectious. You know, there are a couple of um, rare cases of um, transmissible cancers, like in um, Tasmanian devils and in um, dogs and clams. Um, so, you know, it's certainly not an infectious disease, um, by and large. Um, I, I think the, the real question is, you know, what kind of disease is it or how should we be thinking about it and treating it? And for a long time, it has been approached as, um, as if it is almost an acute disease, right? Oh, you come in with cancer, let's treat it to make it go away. But the more that we learn about cancer, and especially um, you know, once you get to the point where cancer um, is in a later stage, after invasion, after metastasis, uh, it can be very, very hard, if not impossible, to eradicate it with high-dose therapies, which means that the 
there's a, an opportunity there to potentially rethink um, how we conceptualize cancer when it is at a later stage. So rather than thinking of it as, oh, how do we get rid of it? How do we eradicate it? We could think of it as a disease. It's more like an acute disease that you manage, um, perhaps more like diabetes, where you, you know, so realize this is something you're going to have to manage with um, treatment, maybe with changing your lifestyle, with um, watchful waiting in the case of um, you know, some cancers where uh, the best thing to do is to you know, wait until it progresses before um, really taking any action. So I think there are a lot of opportunities to rethink how we conceptualize of it as a disease. Um, and, and that's from the clinical side. And I guess, you know, there's, there's another piece of this, which is that um, there's a really um, profound sense in which, sorry, there's a profound sense in which cancer is a part of our legacy as multicellular organisms. You know, it has been with us since the origin of multicellularity. So, you know, it is both a disease and a long-term evolutionary companion that we have been somehow living with um, for hundreds of millions of years. And so I think that holding those two things together um, can, can maybe help us with um, not just coming up with new approaches in the clinic, but also help us sort of grapple with cancer socially, psychologically, culturally um, in a more productive way. You, um, you talk a lot about, or you write about um, like the predator-prey relationships or, or what happens when, um, when uh, too much pesticide is applied to a field and and a, and a creature that is supposed to be wiped out, a few are left, and they, they flourish. So the subtitle is How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer. What kind of reaction are you getting when you posit this notion? And I know you are building on the shoulders of other people who come before you who have thought about this. What kind of reaction are you getting from uh, people who see cancer in terms of, uh, you know, let's, let's carpet bomb it? Yeah. Well, you know, what, what's really exciting to me is that, you know, when I talk to people who are, you know, sort of on the front lines of treating cancer, you know, even people who aren't part of the evolution in cancer community that I'm a part of, but, um, you know, people who are, you know, working at Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, you know, helping to set up the different drugs that cancer patients will get. Uh, I hear just increasingly that the approach that is being taken in the clinic is much more um, sort of willing to recognize these constraints that come from the evolution of resistance and that we need to kind of change our strategy and treatment um, so that as the treatment is beginning, already um, the, uh, the the approach is considering, well, what, what if the, you know, resistance evolves? What is the long-term strategy here for, for the patient? And so um, the adaptive therapy approach that is kind of similar to this pest management approach that, that you mentioned, um, this was pioneered by Bob Gatenby at Moffitt Cancer Center in um, Tampa, Florida. And that approach is really to treat the tumor only when it's growing and to try to keep the tumor uh, a manageable size. And um, along with that, by not giving high dose therapy, it is actually allowing the tumor to stay in a 
state that is sensitive to the therapy, which means that when you use a therapy, the tumor can um, will will respond, i.e., decrease in size. So it's keeping the tumor sensitive to the therapeutic agent that is being used, rather than using such a high dose that you only leave um, cells that are able to survive in spite of that chemotherapy. So it's kind of trading off the you know short-term you know obliteration or apparent obliteration of the tumor, um, which might seem like a great thing, like, you know, oh, you can't see the tumor with imaging anymore. We've gotten rid of it. But in reality, very often what happens is you just select for those cells that are resistant. And this adaptive therapy approach gets around that by not using such a high dose so that a lot of the cells that are still sensitive remain present. And um, oftentimes they can actually outcompete the resistant cells once you remove the therapy. So um, it's kind of using these evolutionary dynamics in order to keep the tumor under control um, for the longer term, rather than just kind of trying to achieve the most dramatic short-term decrease in the size of the tumor. This is a dense subject and, and very profound a way of thinking. But And one metaphor you use or analogy you use is um, that uh, there are two ways of thinking about going to war. And you write about this, you know, Mars, who, who is like, you know, let's, let's gather the weapons and in, in Greek mythology and we go for it. And then the other um, way is a more thoughtful way the of intelligence gathering it, 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 one way of, of going about it that, that you write about and that is from a way that Athena uh, uh, approached um, life in in the mythology and so I have to ask did this thinking did this whole thinking arise from the fact that that's your namesake <laughs> any way shape or form you know um, I'm Probably not, but I have to say that like the fact that it is my name and yeah, I was named after my um, grandmother on my father's side. Um, she was also Athena Ectipus. Um, I, I think it, maybe it's just a little more part of my identity than it otherwise would. So, so it may have colored the, you know, way that I look at um, how to, uh, you know, handle aggressive encounters in general, but, you know, um, strategy is really important. Um, but, uh, but I do think it's just, a, a it's, it's a nice, um, way of that, you know, can resonate at least with those people who are like nerds, like I was like really into Greek mythology when I was younger, um, that, you know, there are these different mentalities about how do you, um, meet your goals when there are um, other entities around that don't have interests that are the same as yours, right? And and you can approach that from a, you know, like uh, bloodthirsty and I just want to see that I'm having an effect and getting rid of the enemy kind of approach, which is the, you know, Aries or, or Mars approach um, versus the Athena approach, which is really much more, you know, try to understand what your enemy's vulnerabilities are. Maybe also what their interests are. What do, you know, like what would actually um, make the enemy be less of an enemy? And then approach um, the process of interacting with that, you know, other entity um, 
from a much longer term perspective that is really relying on that strategy, that intelligence gathering, and also kind of acknowledging that you know, there very often long-term coexistence is the most viable way of, of dealing with a threat. And, um, and that's not being naive, right? Like that can come from a very detailed and intense strategic analysis of the situation in the long-term. Let me ask you as a way of getting around to some of the larger things you think about and write about. Uh, you went to Reed College. I did go to Reed College. And Reed College is well known for being a place where um, people reach across disciplines, that people think about, that try to think about things in new light and, and maybe just do things that other people say, what are they doing? That's not, that's not academic. That's not college. Um, did that environment have any influence on the way you've uh, come to do your, your current work? So... I was really, really drawn to read because of the um, the fact that uh, the the way that the education is approached is is really in this like sense of you know how do you develop yourself as a thinker as a as a scholar um, rather than okay go home and memorize all these things and come back for the test um, so the you know the whole environment of Reed, I think, was just really appealing to me because of that. And um, I definitely flourished there in terms of, um, you know, really being able to take um, my interests and, um, and, and it really fed my interests. And I also had the chance to like take an independent study and I, and I did some of my own research while I was at Reed too. And, you know, I, I think it was a, a really great environment for um, my intellectual development at that stage. Um, I was, you know, really curious and involved in, you know, wanting to learn in general. And, um, and I think Reed was really the perfect place for me at that time in my life, definitely. Well, it seems like part of what you're doing with your, with your work as an author, as a professor, and as, as even as a podcaster is looking for looking for ways looking for ways that uh, um, cooperation influences reality our lives so I'm, I'm getting back to cancers here cancer here in a minute but what's the human generosity project and how does that relate to this notion of looking at cancer as something we um, gather intelligence on and learn about and then cooperate help ourselves cooperate to control it yeah. Yeah. Well, so broadly speaking, the way that I kind of look at my research agenda is to understand what forces allow for cooperation to be stable and then what um, and then how that can be challenged, sometimes undermined, but then also how you get these sort of other layers to help um, reinforce and make cooperation even more stable. Um, you know, at the larger scale. So whether we're talking about human societies or, you know, cellular societies, there are some of the same challenges there. How do you scale up from, you know, interactions of just a few individuals to very, you know, large scale interactions with, you know, hundreds, thousands, you know, millions, trillions of individuals. And um, those, 
there, there's a sort of an underlying set of principles from cooperation theory that apply no matter what kind of system we're looking at. So, um, you know, as you have more individuals in a group, it becomes harder to monitor those individuals um, to make sure that they're actually behaving cooperatively. And so you need to have sort of, you know, new mechanisms emerge as you scale up. And so, you know, in the case of multicellular bodies, those um, mechanisms are largely kind of you know, through these shared genes that help to detect and respond to cellular cheating. In the case of human societies, you know, we have, in, you know, in smaller scale societies, there are a lot of um, systems that help to promote cooperation on, you know, smaller scales. Um, and then as we go to larger scale societies, you know, we have larger institutions and other mechanisms. And so, um, so there are some, I think, important similarities, broadly speaking, about, you know, how do you get a large scale cooperative system. And one of the really exciting things that we found in the Human Generosity Project is that in small scale societies around the world that we've studied, they have um, these systems for helping um, people uh, in times of crisis and in, in times of need when there's disasters or other unexpected events where, um, where people will help each other based on the need of the other person and their own ability to help. So we call these need-based transfer systems. And um, so we've seen these with the Maasai of East Africa. They have a system called Osotwa. Um, in Fiji, they have a system called Keri Keri. Um, even here in um, Arizona, near the um, border with Mexico, there are ranching communities that have a system called neighboring, which also has these um, need-based transfer kinds of dynamics to it. And so, so you know, this is something that we found in our work with humans. And um, now we're starting to look at, well, like, how do those kinds of need-based transfer dynamics potentially work in cellular systems? And it, it turns out that there are a lot of elements of how nutrient transport happens and how nutrient transport even evolved during the evolution of multicellularity that have very interesting parallels with what happens in um, human small-scale societies when they're helping each other in times of need. Um, so I think you know, we can really gain a lot from uh, taking these different perspectives that these different systems let us see and then looking then at, um, you know, these parallel systems through these new lenses and saying, okay, well, you know, this mechanism that maybe we haven't thought of in this way, maybe it is actually an analogy um, to what is happening in this other system. And then, and then we can get more sort of theoretical leverage on it to understand, you know, how it evolved and um, how it might actually be functioning in real time. What do you, what insights are you getting or what, uh, what do you see happening that relate to what you're uh, working on today with the, uh, with the worldwide responses and the differences to uh, COVID-19? Yeah, well, we've been actually, we started a new project at the beginning of March, right before the pandemic was declared um, to look at how people are managing risk cooperating with each other and how they perceive their interdependence with um, humanity and with their neighbors. Um, so we've been gathering longitudinal data actually over um, the, the last several weeks and we're, we're just starting to look at that now. Um, but we're, we're really interested in trying to um, understand how um, we can, how we can support uh, these sort of helping networks that may naturally emerge during times of crisis or um, how we can maybe even just more generally um, use this moment, right, when we're in a, a time of, you know, 
global crisis really um, to reflect on, you know, what are the systems that we would want to have in place, um, maybe that we don't yet have in place or the systems that we want to um, enhance or invest in, um, whether those are at the level, you know, broader institutional level or really in terms of, you know, interpersonal connections. And, you know, do we need to, you know, for example, um, set up some mechanism for making it easier for people to make Osotois-like relationships like or, or the neighboring type relationships. Um, would that actually be able to enhance our resilience in, um, in future disasters? So, so you know, as, as we are gathering data and trying to understand what's going on now with the pandemic, um, our frame is actually much larger um, thinking about you know, how is it that, you know, as humans, we are able to deal with crises, deal with times of unexpected need? Um, what can we learn from these small scale societies that have been grappling with, you know, challenges continuously um, in a way that many of us in, um, you know, modern Western market integrated societies haven't? Um, and, you know, are there are there sort of things that have been lost in terms of, you know, cultural practices that we might want to be revisiting now to help us manage our own risk better and to be able to help each other when, when we're able to? Well, what did you see occurring around us in the last few months that prompted your thinking to launch this new project? Yeah, so it really stemmed from work that we've done earlier in the human generosity project so what we have found is that when um, there are times of natural disasters when individuals um, experience illness or injury unexpectedly um, when essentially when there are these events that are out of people's control um, that are unexpected that that seems to be when people help each other th through the sort of need-based norms. And um, that is in contrast to sort of operating in a um, account-keeping debt-based kind of way. So um, even the Maasai of East Africa who have this Osotwa system where they help each other in times of need, they also have another system called Sile which is a debt credit system. So I might not have enough cattle um, because of something that was within my control or just, you know, I wanna have more cattle, so I ask you for some. Um, and that would then operate within the account keeping system. But if I didn't have enough um, cattle to take care of my family because of something unexpected, and I ask you for help as an Osotwa partner, then that operates with these sort of different norms. And so, we saw you know, what's happening right now on the global scale um, and also you know, nationally and, and locally you know, are situations where um, some, there, you know, there is this need, there is a crisis and um, it has some parallels with some of the things that we've seen in small scale societies and then you know, other things that are slightly different, right? Like it's, it's hard to help people face to face because right now we have to be really mindful of um, not creating situations where disease will transmit. Um, but nevertheless, this is a time of crisis. And, you know, there are a lot of examples of, um, you know, spontaneous helping that happened during times of crisis in general. Um, and we thought that this would be a very interesting opportunity to study it in the context of a pandemic and understand how, um, you know, when, when one of our main ways of 
uh, of helping, which is, you know, face to face and in person and sharing things is um, taken away. Like what, what does that do to um, these, um, you know, this impetus that people I think do have of, of wanting to help when they have the ability to, and they know that others are in need. It's interesting. We have this language again, too, uh, that's occurring right now, right? Uh, by, by, by isolating, we're helping each other. And, and that's a, that's a very um, potent image, I think, mm -hmm. and a potent uh, way of thinking about it. And it seems to work for many people, not everybody, of course, and then we're back to the different uh, ways cell react, cells react. But, but for many people, it does seem to work. What, any insight that you think you're gaining from that in terms of how people uh, want to help, want to provide me? Want to provide people's needs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there have been a lot of people who, you know, really just said, okay, I'm just going to stay home. And, um, you know, that is something that is a big, it's a sacrifice, right? You, you know, you're not going to your favorite coffee shop and, and hang out there. You're not going into your workplace where it may be easier to get your job done. Um, and, you know, there, I think a lot of people who are quite, willing to make a lot of sacrifices um, for the greater good. And, you know, I, I, I always kind of just lean on the optimistic side. I, I don't know if it's by nature or um, just because I have seen so many examples of really astounding levels of cooperation in, you know, really difficult times. But um, I think, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that um, people are making a lot of sacrifices uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, on an hour-to-hour -hour basis, in order to reduce the risk of disease for you know people who are more vulnerable, and also to just reduce the demands on our medical system at a time right now where that's really important to you know not be putting any more strain on the on our healthcare system than what it is already under. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it actually has uh, an impact beyond this time, if it does change thinking or, you know, perceptions of the way people relate to each other in the world. So, yeah, I think it, we'll have to, you know, I think we have to, uh, it, this is a formative experience, I think, for all of us. We, none of us will forget this. And I think that we have an opportunity to use this time now and then our processing of you know what has happened to lead us to a, a, a better future in terms of our capacity to deal with pandemics and other crises that might be happening on you know local or global scales <coughs> excuse me so behind you uh, are many framed images of what look like artwork for your zombified podcast yes and um Zombified, the, the podcast is, is a new podcast about how we are vulnerable to being hijacked by things that are not us, from microbes hijacking behavior to humans influencing each other, to our brains being taken over by social media. We talk about why zombification happens, why we're susceptible to it, and what we can do about it. Um, you know, and at first when I looked at it and looked at the images, like, well, that's, are they joking? <laughs> but of course, you're, you're not joking that zombification, even though we may not see people walking around eating brains, there are things happening that are actually or metaphorically eating our brains. What, what, I guess I'm back to communication here. What prompted you to want to jump into this? So uh, the, the reality is I um, was not a podcast listener. And then um, one of my graduate students uh, 
got me into a few science podcasts and I was very quickly addicted and I just loved the converse, the ones that were conversational where it was, you know, really about kind of drawing out a complex topic, but through a, a, a back and forth and um, those that had some humor and some imaginative components and playfulness. Um, and and at that point, I, I started looking for um, the podcast that I wanted to listen to. I wanted to listen to a podcast that was like kind of about science, but also sort of about technology and about these things that, you know, were affecting us that we didn't really realize were affecting us. Like I was looking for that podcast and I couldn't find that podcast. And so I, I complained to, you know, the graduate student who told me about podcasting and my lab manager. I'm like, oh, I really wish there was a podcast like this. Do you guys know anything? And they're like, no, but you should make that podcast. And I'm like, ha ha, <laughs> good one. Like, I'm not going to do a podcast. Um, but then it kind of got under my skin and they, you know, suggested it a couple more times. And then um, there was one day when I was kind of loosely thinking about it and like the idea of calling it zombified popped into my head. And that was the moment, the point of no return. It was like, oh yeah, zombified. And then it, it just literally had a life of its own from that point has, forward. <laughs> has it been easy to find topics to talk about? It is so easy. I mean, I have uh, a backlog of recorded episodes I'm trying to get out and there's so many more that I want to do. It, it's just amazing how many things really um, fit within this framework of, you know, what are things that affect us that we're not so aware of that hijack our behavior that change the way we think that, you know, influence us um, unwittingly. There, there's a endless supply, fortunately or unfortunately. I don't know. <laughs> we're living through that right now, aren't we? We are. Yeah. You know, um, here, I'll, I'll end it on something I read. I, I can't remember if it was in the book or something I read in a, in a Wired article. Um, but uh, you are taking these ideas with your, with your other scientific partners and, and, and the idea of how to uh, deal with cancer to, um, to a clinic, right? You're working with a clinic or gearing up with a project to work with a clinic on some of these ideas in a very specific way. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the adaptive therapy approach I was talking about earlier that um, Bob Gatenby pioneered at Moffitt Cancer Center, we are now um, starting a clinical trial in Arizona um, with Mayo to look at breast cancer. So we're still in the um, planning stages of that, but um, yeah, we're really excited to be able to, um, to, to do additional um, work in the clinic because um, as of now, um, there is a, a really successful early clinical trial um, done at Moffitt Cancer Center by um, Bob Gatenby and some of his colleagues in prostate cancer where they used adaptive therapy to keep cancer um, under control and they were able to achieve um, quite uh, impressive um, control of um, very late stage prostate cancer. Um, so there's a lot more work to be done though and really important to be doing clinical trials right now on adaptive therapy and these other kind of evolutionarily informed approaches that are really aimed at cancer control. And at the same time, you, you're hoping still to have a uh, zombification uh, uh, con conference at some point in September perhaps? 
Um, yeah, so the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting, we, we had our first one in the fall of um, 2018. And the second one is scheduled for October 2020. And right now we are um, exploring all sorts of potential models for how we will hold the meeting. We're definitely going to have a um, large online component and um, we'll probably have a smaller in-person component kind of depending on what we can do at that time but um but yeah the idea of this meeting is basically to um you know figure out how we can take a radically interdisciplinary approach to understanding health and um well-being and uh larger sort of existential issues that we face um so we have people from medicine people from arts um a lot of scientists who use um, especially evolutionary biology as a tool for understanding, um, uh, you know, behavior and um, how our world is changing, and you know, to bring everybody together to um, think about and talk about the challenges we're facing now and the challenges we will be facing in the future through a, a highly interdisciplinary lens. And so um, that's our our goal with this meeting, and we think it's extremely important to um, be moving forward with with that set of goals given the current situation that we're in so uh so we're really excited to um to be putting that together for um 2020 and um it is a academic conference but one that is accessible to general audiences that's one of our goals as well and so um it's uh you know the kind of conference you could register for for and um this year at least uh, attend from your living room if you want and um be a part of a uh, a really excellent um and interdisciplinary group of scholars that are trying to wrap their heads around how we can deal with and prevent the zombie apocalypse in all its manifestations. Exactly. <laughs> um, I really appreciate the work you're doing and I appreciate you talking to me. That, that's really fascinating. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Cheating Cell, How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer, Athena Activist. All right, go back to those dogs now and all those things. <laughs> <laughs> Could you hear the barking? I hope that wasn't, my, my dogs were barking out there. <laughs> it's, it's the reality. It's all, we're it all cooperating together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank Great. you. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.